a book review of the Tao of Judo. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. That's what Kung Fu Podcast is all about. And I'm your host, T.W. Smith. I greatly appreciate you joining me today and allowing me to be part of your martial arts journey. It feels like it's been a really long time since I released an episode, yet I can assure you it is not from a lack of effort. I had recorded this particular episode once, scrapped the whole thing, started over, and I feel like it's a much better representation of the work that I have wanted to put out in the beginning. Also in between that time, I've been in a couple of conversations, Skype calls with Mr. Ando Merzwa. He has a very loyal following over on YouTube and is the host of the podcast titled Fight for a Happy Life. If this is your first time to Kung Fu Podcast, welcome. You are in the audience of some of the finest and sharpest martial artists in the world. The types of folks that take a great deal of care and put in a lot of effort into the craft. This particular episode is my first direct journey, per se, into judo. We've tapped on it a couple of times. And then in the last episode, which was the first-hand account of martial arts in 1918, where we were introduced to the character E.J. Harrison. E.J. Harrison headed up the Chinese Labor Corps in World War I and was also a judo practitioner from the Kodokan. While I was researching that episode, I found the book titled The Tao of Judo by Kevin Cavalcanti. And the title itself is what intrigued me. With the little background work, I found that he was a sixth don in traditional judo and as well as a respected member of the academia. During his book, we're going to look at the accounts of development of traditional judo and how it moves into other areas. Kevin is going to take sports judo and traditional judo and using the framework of the Tao, compare the two. He's also going to look at it from the perspective of a monk. And if you remember in the episode, Arresting the Shadows, when you're taking a book or the Tao Te Ching and many other books that can almost be timeless, a lot of times you can look at it from the perspective of a warrior, the perspective of a monk, and the perspective of a scholar. Kevin is also going to outline some of the expectations if you are a traditional Judoka. Before we look into the book review, I found a story from 2015 on St. Patrick's Day in Buffalo, where there's this guy, he is really trying to just instigate a fight. He is looking to fight anyone, he's throwing things around, flipping his hands off in front of people, and things are starting to get heated. In fact, the crowd is starting to get a little bit heated. He's got a buddy there who's also escalating the heat in the activity that's going on. And then out of nowhere, this officer shoves his buddy out of the way, then grabs the main troublemaker by the neck and executes what is described as, quote, a powerful judo technique known as Asato Otoshi, sweeping his leg right out from under him as he forcefully slams him to the asphalt instantly taking the win out of him. The officer uses his knee to execute a knee pin and has him tied up in seconds. End quote. The crowd really let the officer know how much they appreciated him. Here's 20 seconds of what it sounded like if you had been there. He's shaking the fences. 
Here comes the police officer. You don't have to be a mind reader to know what they were saying there at the end. Needless to say, the officer had him up and moving in probably less than about 15 seconds. One of the other things I want you to know about Kevin Cavalcanti is that he has yielded over 10 other books, 31 articles, and 21 book chapters in leading academic journals. He is a member of the Department of Anthropology and Sociology at James Madison University. You can find more of his work at judoinfo.com, gentleways.com, and I got my copy of the Zen Judo Handbook, which he also participated in. So if you're ready, I'm ready. Let's begin our journey into the book review of the Tao of Judo. The Tao Te Ching is a timeless manual. It addresses a cyclic principle of how things are gained and lost, providing guiding thoughts about how to go far enough, but not too far. Since bringing his art into the United States, Kevin has three generations of traditional martial arts black belts. He wanted to write this book as part of leaving a legacy of perspective and teaching for his traditional martial arts grandchildren. He says that many books are written on judo from a warrior's perspective, but he wanted to share his thoughts from the viewpoint of a monk. He writes, quote, The reason I use judo to exemplify the way of the monk is because I've been practicing the art for 35 years now, and for at least the past 11 years, I've used judo to express Taoism. More importantly, I use judo because I'm afraid that we have lost the judoka way of the monk in the West. Judo was westernized sooner than the other Eastern martial arts when it became an Olympic sport, and it has been reduced to a sport ever since. Well, friend of the program, Ben Junkins, has always said that much of the meat in a book lies in the preface and the introduction. I would describe it as the undercurrent of the ocean. It shares what might be driving the current that you see. Kevin's introduction is titled, Being Armed Without Weapons. His stance of this book is in the very first sentence of his introduction. It says, quote, This book is not for those who want to win tournaments. End quote. He continues to write that it, it is about practicing a martial art in the right spirit. It is written for those who wish to learn the difference between practicing to win and practicing as a life journey, end quote. Kevin begins to introduce learning martial arts from the monk's perspective. He will also point to theatrical warrior portrayals and glorifications throughout movies and other media form. Whenever I'm trying to wrap my head around this relationship between movies and media, the chicken and the egg kind of thing, I would highly recommend looking at Professor Paul Bowman. It's in his ability to point to specific time periods, media events, and promotions and show you where the legends and the myths were born. And sometimes it's very amazing of how well he can point these things to you. If you want to learn more about Paul Bowman, go to KungFuPodcast.com forward slash Marshall Myths. 
Kevin writes that from his perspective, quote, Life is not about winning or losing. It's about living it well. Sometimes we cannot escape tragedy, but the way we deal with tragedy shows whether we are truly martial artists or not. Real martial arts practice teaches us to live with our limitations and imperfections. They show that life is fragile and things don't always work the way we expect. Sometimes things are ahead and sometimes they are behind. Sometimes breathing is hard and sometimes it comes easy. Sometimes there is strength and sometimes weakness. Sometimes one is up and sometimes one is down. That's from the Tao Te Ching, chapter 29. The question is not whether we can fight forever. The question is whether we can walk the path in serenity despite everything that life throws our way, end quote. In Kevin's work, the word spiritual doesn't mean something supernatural or church-related or any other form of religious orientation. It is used in his work as the Taoist sense of virtue, of being true to one's nature, fulfilling one's calling. He uses the example that a blade of grass is virtuous if it fully becomes a blade of grass, no more and no less. Kevin writes that spiritual conditioning and physical education went hand in hand. A quiet mind was the source of energy to a disciplined body. And this wasn't done to impress people or claim great glory. It was part of following the path, the way, the Tao. When it comes to the martial components, the techniques were tools for polishing one's character. Your practice was meant to foster patience humility, compassion, and loyalty. The founders of the modern Japanese martial arts knew that the learning of techniques without soul work was empty, and a martial art taught without spiritual content was dangerous, since it could be easily used for good or for evil. That statement reminded me of Ian Abernathy, violence is ethically neutral. In itself, it can't be judged whether it's good, bad, right, or wrong. It is how it is used, how it is delivered, that has to be judged. I want to share a quick story about one of my students that was learning, as I describe it, socially unacceptable Hopgar Lama Pai system, which is one of the things that I teach. It wasn't developed for civilian protection, nor for sports. It is a swift blade system, and I only teach it to a few along the way. It has four guiding principles, and the first one speaks to the mindset to when you practice. It goes by many translations. I usually translate it as being ruthless. The classical metaphorical teachings has two examples. When pulling out the weeds, rip them out by the root, or they're going to grow back. And the other is, is that if you have to fight the tiger, you must destroy it, or it will come back to take you. Now, this was an incredibly good system for us and my military classmates. But we were also required to do one hour of meditation per day so that we could demonstrate emotional control and bring yourself out quickly of that dark space that you find to overcome fear and to administer with everything you got all of your power at once. Well, the student that I had been teaching up to that point stopped practicing his meditation. And within a few weeks, you could tell that his demeanor was beginning to change. And I let him know, if you're not going to practice both parts of your training, don't practice either. 
you can forget everything I've ever taught you because I will not teach you again. I am not in the habit of creating loose cannons. So to practice the violence is one thing. Having the development of self as a governor is another. And when it comes to the question of why does Kevin mix Taoist philosophical teaching with judo, he writes that, quote, Taoism provides a frame for practice for those of us who practice the arts for life, end quote. In this particular case, I felt like I had an advantage in the sense that understanding the Tao came with all six styles of Chinese martial arts that I trained in. It would help you understand how to generate power from your root or to guide power through your waist. You didn't have to read it as esoteric. In many cases, if you read it as a scholar, it was just straight physics. For example, if you want to go forward, think back. It's something I tell the students all the time. And if you look into nature, all great running creatures have powerful rear legs, not front ones. They use their powerful legs to drive into the earth, projecting them forward. So they push back to go forward. They don't reach to go forward. In physics, this would kind of fall in line with Isaac's Newton third law of action. The more power you generate into the earth, the more power you project yourself forward or up. And the last heading in his introduction is titled, Judo, Sport, or Art? He writes that Judo entered the Olympics in 1964, which I didn't know that. Then Kevin states that shortly after, spiritual development, the virtuous part of the art, and kata was replaced with more conditioning for sport, competitive, and strategic aspects of the sport. He says that when winning becomes everything... The way of the monk is lost. And that one statement in context was a source of great conflict for me for years. I grew up looking up to people like Vince Lombardi, where winning wasn't everything, it's the only thing. And when I was 15 years old, a man that I had never met, but I began to study his work, was Dan Gable. He helped me shape my mind to get better to prepare myself for the collegiate football and wrestling opportunities that I wanted to create for myself. And he would say things like, quote, The first period is won by the best technician. The second period is won by the kid in the best shape. And the third period is won by the kid with the biggest heart, end quote. So I really tried to cover all three, know my techniques and know them well, be in very good physical shape, and bring it with a conviction so that I could overcome even when my opponents outweighed me by 50 to 75 pounds. So learning the Tao at first, in all honesty, made me feel like I was becoming some sort of a lazy pacifist, and it was encouraging it. I mean, really, when you look at a literal translation like, the wise man does by not doing, that could easily be poorly interpreted as, don't work too hard, let things happen as you know, they just fall into place for you, and putting in a lot of effort isn't the wise approach. Through time, of course, I realized that that was not what it was intended to try to say, but at face value, when you read it literally, that's what it meant to me. And I had that conflict between the idea of not trying to win at something or being the very best at something was something that I had to reconcile. Through time, I began to understand the translation much better. But originally, it did create some conflict for me. And just bringing it up could get me into this whole topic of participation trophies and other things. 
and as well as sharing that I do believe that anyone that gets comfortable with losing has lost their spirit as much as someone who is consumed by winning. Now, if I had to choose between the two, probably like most of us, I would undoubtedly pick winning. However, when you follow the Tao, you can prioritize hard work, plus take your lumps along the way, learn from them, move forward while you develop a good spirit. And I would summarize that as learn to train without making winning a priority or your performance, but learning and sharing. So let's move forward with Kevin's book and see what he says. He writes, quote, Nowadays, it is hard to see any difference between an Olympic judo match and a wrestling bout. This single-minded pursuit of victory is, of course, the opposite of the deeper goal of the art. When the only thing that matters is being a champion, one is constantly feeding one's ego instead of building one's character. I can't argue that point. If you think I'm exaggerating, read magazine interviews with European or American judo champions. They come across with a tremendous amount of arrogance. They'll say things like, I'm the best in the world. A few may even qualify their statement, I'm the best in the world in groundwork. Or, I'm the best in the world in foot techniques. Desire clouds the mind. Desire for victory blinds the judoka to what is real in the practice. The more you desire, the more you feed your ego. At some point, it is no longer about polishing your soul. Coaches push for more medals. Presidents of judo federations want greater glory for their countries, and athletes want the gold. And nobody considers the good of the art. So here we are at this balance point where we understand that lacking desire is going to get you somewhere on the bottom, getting your ass handed to you pretty regularly. And in some cases, you're going to be asking for more. Now, even the monks have to wrestle with this. If you desire to become a monk, how do you get rid of that desire? I mean, either you're going to have the desire to be a monk or not. So how do you become a monk without desire? The solution lies in the Tao avoiding the extremes. And by that, you have to learn to practice avoiding the extremes, for example, like a polarizing desire, and then point that cannon in the most productive direction. I did an entire podcast years ago on when can you tell that a desire that has become an obsession. I need to go pull that out and polish it off a little bit and put it back in here somewhere because having the desire to be an Olympic judoka isn't necessarily bad, per se, in my book. But but on the same token, he would have to have a source of desire to become a traditional judoka and live oneself inside and through the art. Kevin provides an excerpt from a former president of the largest judo organization in the West and then a starkly contrasting excerpt from Shihan Ueshiba, the son of the founder of Aikido, to illustrate the differences. He summarizes it by saying, The difference between practicing a martial art as a sport and practicing it as a way of life. When you use judo as a means to other ends, you don't enjoy practicing it for its own sake. Kevin goes on to describe that how in approximately 100 years, 
judo lost its soul due to a sports emphasis, metal chasing, and became another form of wrestling. In chapter 1 that's titled, My Words Have Ancient Beginnings, he wrote about the flow of jiu-jitsu evolving into various styles. Externally, some of these styles emphasize groundwork, others emphasize striking and throwing. Internally, he describes how jiu-jitsu had also another set of variations. Some schools emphasized preemptive striking, taking the lead, while others focused on timely counterattacks, and others would use what we call here the hell-with-it approach, give it the shock and awe, a sudden total attack. During the mid-1800s, jiu-jitsu was adopted for the civilian population. Educational and philosophical components were intertwined with the physical martial art, and bujutsu became budo. This process in the Japanese arts was almost complete by 1868. The Chinese martial arts at the same time is going to have to wait another 60 years to go more formally through that process. For better understanding of how that happened, go to kungfupodcast.com forward slash sunlutong. It is in this chapter that Kevin introduces the historical character, Jigoro Kano. He was born in 1860, and he is the founder of Judo. Kevin shares how Kano was developing his ideas, where he had invited Funakoshi to his martial arts school, and as well as he had students go to Ueshiba's Aikido school, and was reportedly a study of Western wrestling as well. Remarkably, in this story, by the age of 17, Kano is at Tokyo Imperial University and in 1879, at the age of 19, he is putting on a jiu-jitsu presentation in front of the President of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant, who was visiting Japan. In Kano's system, you had to be equally adept in throwing, striking, and groundwork. These three areas also had specific subsections. For example, the striking isn't administered with the same intent as, say, like Xing Yi, Choli Foot, or Hop Guard Kung Fu. It was administered to get the response you needed to create an opening or to bring your objective to an end. I want to let you know at this point that Kevin and I have communicated several times, and he has authorized me to turn his whole book into an audiobook, which I am already beginning to work on it. In that book, you will find incredible details about all the sections and the subsections, and I will let you know when it is available for download. Also, if you ever want to support this program, you can go to kungfupodcast.com forward slash support, and I have a list of things there that you can do to support this program. Now, Kano created his system under one unifying principle for the techniques he learned, and this principle was called inner tranquility or efficiency. It is also translated as well as maximum efficiency in mental and physical energy. There's another principle that's going to come into effect later that will once again transform his art. We have reintroduced this concept of when we're doing our work, whether we're looking at a timeless manuals such as the Tao Te Ching or almost any other type of work, take a moment and reflect upon it from a variety of perspectives. The perspective of a monk, the perspective of a warrior, 
and the perspective of a scholar. Try to make sure that when you're doing your type of work, it doesn't matter whether or not it's working on something personally, professionally, your martial arts, whatever it might be, look for connections. For example, how did we get from the Chinese Labor Corps in a first-hand account to studying judo as it begins in Japan and begins moving west? There are many times that what you're looking for is just simply behind the curtain. All you got to do is open it. I would also encourage you to take time to reflect upon history. And it doesn't really matter if you're looking at something that's clinical, like your family history and the risk of cancer, risk of cardiac disease. That's history. And you're not trying to learn it so you figure out, okay, great-grandpa had a heart attack at 45. What you're trying to do is find out whether or not you can apply something in that history for yourself to help yourself move forward today. I am not a big believer in learning history so that I can win the next game of martial arts trivial pursuit that has really zero interest to me. Instead, I like to look at what knowledge did they gain as they were working through their struggles and understandings that they may have gained through their processes. What successes did they have? What circumstances did they find themselves in? What failures did they have to work through? And how did they rebound from setbacks? That is what Kung Fu Podcast is trying to do in many occasions while we're looking through the past histories of things. Kevin Cavalcanti is writing to share a legacy with his judo family, his judo grandchildren, third generations of black belts. And we're taking a little sneak listen. And what is he passing down as part of the teaching of judo? He's comparing sport judo to traditional judo. What's gained? what's been lost, what can be retrieved. We're also going to continue to make this distinction between desire and obsession. We've brought this episode to close by introducing Jigoro Kano, a man that put on a jiu-jitsu presentation in front of the President of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant, and then later becomes the founder of what we know as judo. In the next episode, we're going to be looking at his curriculums, the code of behavior, Real problems, real stories that were happening at the Kodakon that were not in Kevin Calvacanti's book. But I'm bringing to the forefront in this process to emphasize what he is sharing. We'll be looking into the four pillars of judo. Also, why judo etiquette? Not what it is so much as why is it important to him and passing it down to his legacy. And then... Finishing it up with, why do great tailors, when they're fixing something, only cut a little? I can promise you it will not be long before part two is out, so stay tuned. Get in touch with me. I love hearing from you. Thank you so much for reaching out whenever you do and wherever you do it, whether that's Twitter, Facebook, or directly emailing me. Take care, and I will be talking with you soon.